For those of us that struggle with prayer, it's especially comforting to know that Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. One specific thing he says to pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this might be one of the most important characteristics of effective prayer. And yet it's one of the most difficult things to honestly pray. But if you can learn how to surrender to God in prayer through growing trust, your prayer life will skyrocket. For those of us that have control issues and struggle with trusting God, even after praying, this message is especially for us. Let's jump into the message for today. This episode is a continuance of our series on prayer. So I did eight weeks, eight teachings on prayer back in, I believe, July and August, took a break, went through the kingdom of God, talked about hearing God's voice. Now we're back. We're going to continue that series, and we are officially in episode number nine. This is part nine of this series all about prayer. I'm just going to do a little refreshing. Uh, When we talk about prayer, to define prayer accurately and biblically, uh, prayer defined is talking to God with intention and with purpose as his beloved child and according to his word. And I'll say that again for you note-taking nerds like me. Prayer is talking to God with intention, with purpose. These are the key components of prayer. As his beloved child, so I'm approaching God according to who he says I am and according to who he is, and I'm praying according to his word. So his word informs what I say, how I say it, and my communication with God is all, um, you know, prompted by the scriptures. That's what informs the way that I uh, talk to God. Um, so when we talk about prayer, and I, I took John Piper's um, definition of prayer and kind of reworked it and made it a little bit of my own, which is talking to God with intention purpose as his beloved child according to his word. The purpose of prayer, the power of prayer is that God has determined prayer to be the method of causing certain things in our life, in our world, in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our all those different things, these different concentric circles of influence. God has determined that prayer is going to be the method of causing certain things, not everything, but certain things in our life and in our world. So when we pray, that's the cause. The effect is that God answers, God acts, God does something. Whether he gives a no or a yes or a not yet, God answers. And so we as believers, we desire, I think people in general, written into our DNA and in our code as image bearers of God is we want the best life possible. And everyone is going after what they have decided and uh, determined is the best life possible. And arguably, Scripture actually teaches Uh, contrary to what the culture says, the best life possible is found in surrender and submission. Not in autonomy, not in trying to captain your own life, not in totally controlling your life and all that happens. That's not where the best life is found. As much as you and I think inherently that actually if I had total control of my life, that would be the best life possible. It wouldn't be the best life possible. You and I aren't great captains. We aren't great gods of our own lives. We're not great kings and rulers, but God is the best of all those things. And so for those of you that struggle with control and surrendering and giving over and just trusting God, this is the message for you. Because we're going to be talking about the dimension of the prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that actually, I, I grabbed my tea, but I didn't drink it, so let's drink it. In Matthew 6, where Jesus says, I'm opening up my handy dandy logos, I'm going to say logos, logos, say however I want. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, look, verse 9 he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. You know, the repeating. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love the kingdom part. That's why we took several weeks, several months talking about the kingdom because I, I paused here and went, oh, I don't think we know what the kingdom is. I don't think we know what we're praying for. I don't think we know what we're asking for and believing for God to bring. So let's pause on prayer and we'll talk about the kingdom. Now we're back to this, and we know what the kingdom is. Go watch the series if you haven't. I'll hopefully link that in the description below. But there's this dimension of part of God's kingdom coming is his will being done. Not even part of, like, that's a necessary component. That's almost synonymous. When God's will is done on the earth as it is in heaven, that is God's kingdom coming. There's no way to separate the two and say, well, God's kingdom's coming, but his will's not being done in my life. Well, his kingdom's not coming through your life then. His kingdom might be invading our world in different pockets of the world and through other believers and in other regions. But if my life is not in submission and surrender to the will of God, 
And if God's will ideally is not being done in my life, then the kingdom of God in, is not uh, in its fullest capacity advancing through my life in the world. So your will being done involves surrender. It involves submission. It involves trust. It involves knowing who God is, knowing his heart, and knowing his promises so that I can honestly and truly say, your will be done even if it goes against my will and what I think is the best life and my blueprint for my life and everything I've scripted out for how my life should look. If your will is different, God, I do want that. The problem is that is so hard to say. That is so hard to honestly mean in prayer. And so we usually gloss over that part. Or if we say it, we mean something different. Your kingdom come as long as it agrees with my will. Your will be done as long as it matches up with my blueprint and with my script on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not how it actually is supposed to look for us to pray. Your will be done. So to pray... Uh, prayer is a like the foundational component of a blessed life, of the fullest life, of the most abundant life. Your best life in Christ, this side of heaven, is found in a life of prayer, a discipline of prayer, a habit and a rhythm of prayer. Our relationship and friendship with God is built on trust. It is built on trust which involves humbly surrendering our lives to the God who knows better, has the ideal plan, has the perfect will, sees all things, has total control, is sovereign over all creation, and to surrender to him in prayer. Not just daily with my actions, but prayer is a way that I practically surrender. I want that to hit home for you. Part of following Jesus means imitating the rhythms and the disciplines and the life of Jesus. And Jesus demonstrated, modeled perfectly a life of prayer. This pattern, this daily rhythm of praying, getting alone with the Father. And that is a discipline that is so often neglected in our lives in the name of uh, gorging ourselves on the Word of God, which is not bad in and of itself. It's fantastic. But can that be overemphasized? Can that be corrupted by human selfish desire and ambition, where it's all about knowledge and feeling better than people and knowing more than people and, and being able to answer the tough questions so I can put people in their corner? There is, a, there is can be an element of selfishness within this pursuit of knowledge, and even when it comes to praying. But prayer is one of those rhythms of Jesus that often gets neglected because it's like, well, we have the Word of God, and I love the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, the, the rhema, the, the revelations of God that come through, the written scriptures, and the authoritative divine Word that directs my life. There's so much power in that, and I'm never going to minimize or neglect or underemphasize that, but we sometimes... Bible study, and I, that's the whole point of this ministry, is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves, but it has to be paired with and balanced, balanced with a life of prayer. And so I said I would say something, and I forgot what I was going to say, but it had to do with humbly surrendering our lives to God in prayer. Oh, that's what I was going to be, that's what I was going to say, is that prayer is the practical way to surrender to God. That's, if you're wondering, well, how do I surrender to God? Prayer is a part of that equation. Prayer is supposed to set the pace of our lives. Prayer is supposed to get us matched up with and aligned with the rhythm and the pace that God has set for my life. Prayer is the way that my life becomes more conformed, not the only way, but one of the ways God has decided to conform us more into the image of Jesus. Prayer is one of the ways God has decided to match us up daily and get us aligned with what he wants to do in the world. How do we partner with God? How do we walk into a room, a situation, an opportunity and say, I only do what I see the Father doing? That is built on a life of prayer. Prayer. Um, I was motivated by going to church yesterday and hearing the message and being around God's people and worshiping, I was prompted to just come back home, sit down with my wife and kids and say, hey, for 2024, the first seven days, we should definitely dedicate to prayer. My kids six and three, right? So teaching them to pray is like teaching my dog to backflip. It's absolutely difficult. 
but it's very possible and it's rewarding. Okay. And so what we decided is for the next seven days, every hour on the dot, we're going to be engaging as a family in some kind of prayer, whether that's adoration or praise or thanksgiving, whether that's requesting, petitioning, praying for family, uh, just honoring and blessing the Lord, uh, whether that's recalling the scriptures and thanking him for his promises, whether that's confessing sin on the dot for the next seven days, every hour we are consciously awake, we are going to be praying for something as a family. And when you actually just build your life on prayer, things happen. Things happen. Human innovation and strength and, and ability and, and skill and resources and, and scheming and planning, all of that can only take your life so far. But I, I promise the real power to live life, the real power um, to see the most that God has for you in your life it is built not just on the scriptures and on the truth and word of God and meditating and living that out, but on praying and letting the scriptures inform. So I'm not trying to disconnect one from the other. I don't believe you can have a healthy prayer life without a healthy knowledge of God's word. And I don't think a healthy knowledge of God's word is incredibly, entirely efficiently useful in your life without expressing that knowledge in prayer and letting that knowledge inform how you pray and seek the Lord. So God wants to set the pace of your life this year. God has an ideal time frame on certain things and situations and opportunities and relationships and, and things that are going to come into your life. There's an ideal pace God has set for your life. And the way that we walk, not too fast, not too slow, but just right. Like Goldilocks. The way we do that is by establishing a daily discipline of prayer, which involves surrender. Surrender. That is the dimension of prayer that not only no one really wants to talk about, because what we want to do is say, God, here's, here's my to-do list. Here's everything I want you to do. Here's the blueprint for my life. Hey, here's the script. Now, as I pray, you better do these things. And that's how we often treat prayer, where we hold God hostage to our preferences and what we believe is best, assuming, making this presumption that we know best when we don't. Philippians 4, I'm going to start here this morning. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Hmm. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This sounds like Matthew chapter 5, right? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So my life should be revealing the nature and the character and the goodness of God as I do what he says, which requires me to walk at his pace, which requires me to have a life of prayer, which requires me to know the scriptures and have relationship with God to even be able to do these things right. And then there's attached to this reasonableness expressed in my life is a degree of joy that God has for you. How do I rejoice? That's connected to letting your reasonableness be known to the Lord, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And you go, what, what's reasonable? Well, Romans chapter 12 tells us what is good and reasonable, um, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. That's difficult. Everything in our life is pressuring us. Everything not of God, everything of this culture, everything of this world system that is opposed to God is pressuring you into some kind of anxiety. So it's hard to combat all of that when I'm submerged in that 24-7 from my life and finances and relationships and my career and people and social media and the news and what's going on in my little sphere of all of that and what's going to happen with my children and my wife and the diagnosis, all of that pressures us into anxiety. And instead of praying about everything, first, we're anxious about everything. And we only pray once we've really reached the breaking point. It's what once my anxiety pushes me over the edge, once I find myself burnt out and exhausted and I reach that point of I'm done. From my anxiety, then I'll pray. And scripture actually says, no, 
instead of letting anxiety be your default, instead of letting worry and an unhealthy concern be your default and your initial response in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love this because in prayer, you're not informing God as if he doesn't know. You're not demanding God as if he's held hostage to your preferences. You are letting God, you're letting your requests be made known as if to make yourself aware that God is now involved in what I was anxious and concerned with. So when you're anxious and you notice something is grabbing at my heart, something is pressuring me to overthink and be overly concerned, something is moving in me to drive me to worry and create hypothetical scenarios and and to think about things that likely will never happen. When you recognize that, Turn to God in prayer and you go, how? Notice these key words, prayer, I, how do I highlight in logos? I have yet to learn that. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, okay? How do I let my requests be made known to God through what is called prayer? When you talk to God, you are praying. When you let your, that, that is the mode of lifting the burden off your life. That is the way God has ordained, uh, designed for you to be relieved is through prayer. Not just through rehearsing and meditating on the promises of scripture and what he says and who he is and what he's going to do, but prayer is a means of relieving the burden in your life and lifting that to make it not necessarily easier, but to make it less on you. Say so he's in this. And there's a degree of supplication means you're petitioning. You're not demanding. You're not begging. You're not pleading like a beggar, please, sir. Yeah, that, that's not the heart of supplication. It's petitioning. I have a request, God. I have an ideal way. I want this to work out. I have a preference. I have a desire. And I'm letting that, I'm bringing that to you. The way the citizens of a kingdom would bring their requests, their issues, their concerns to the king who can do something about it. They humbly bow themselves, they prostrate themselves, and they say, hey, we have a problem. Would you please get involved? Would you please do something about what I am not able to do? It's out of my control. But there's also a degree of thanksgiving within that. So notice the element of surrender here. If you don't see it, it's in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that peace is guaranteed. Guaranteed. It's a promise. The peace of God that transcends this world will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus when you do what? What's the condition? When you pray. When you actually let your requests be made known to God. If you don't and you bottle that up, oof, then it's on you. And you are limited. I am limited. We have limited resources, ability, knowledge, foresight. We are limited. Limited life. Like we, we don't sustain ourselves. So why would I put all the pressure on me to deal with everything in my life? And I'm not saying you have no responsibility in dealing with those things. I'm not saying it's all on God, but get God involved And let your requests be made known to him. And the surrender aspect, watch. The surrender aspect is I'm not demanding God to do this. I am asking. I have a request. Would you get involved? And part of surrender is saying, I am letting you work within and without my request, however you deem fit, which is another way of saying your will be done. What do we know about God's will? Well, according to Romans chapter 12, we know that God's will is good, acceptable, not what I wanted, acceptable and perfect. See all these little tabs you can open? It's incredible. The will of God is always for your life good, And sometimes we are operating by a different definition of good than God does. What is acceptable and what is perfect. Which doesn't just involve how it's affecting you. What's good for me. What's acceptable for me. What's perfect for me. 
but it's what's good in God's sight. When God's creating the world and he says, uh, yes, this is good. He created the light and he saw that it was good. Do you see life from God's vantage point? Do you define good the way God does? If you do, it will become easier to discern what is the will of God in my life. So remember how I said what is reasonable? What's the reasonableness? How do I make that known? Well, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, there's our word, acceptable to God, which means what? What's acceptable is what he deems fitting. He goes, that's acceptable, not me, which is your spiritual worship, okay? Which is, uh, there's another... um, translation that says uh, this is your reasonable service like it's right this makes sense in light of all that God has done and the mercy he's shown it makes sense it is reasonable for you to lay your life down as a what as a living sacrifice which insinuates what laying down letting go even like giving up giving up surrender humble admission that you are the king and I'm bringing you what you're worthy of. Not even, you're worthy of so much more, but you take what I bring and you're worthy of at least what I can bring you. And so you live as if your life, your actions, your decisions are to be sacrifices laid on the altar. If we learn to live life from a priestly perspective, you'd understand that every moment is essentially there's an altar in front of you. Every moment, this thought, this intent, these motives, these actions, these words, what I'm looking at, what I'm listening to, what I'm engaging in, how I'm interacting with people, every moment is essentially there's an altar before me. Will I lay down this moment in, in, in surrender, in sacrifice to God and do what is pleasing and acceptable in his sight? Surrender is a part of prayer. Sacrifice is a part of prayer. Giving up is a part of prayer. And if you don't think that's the case, you need to understand this. Jesus in Matthew 26 models this perfectly. And Proverbs 3, Proverbs chapter 3 will tell us, we don't always have a perfect understanding of what is truly good. I don't always see the will of God perfectly. I don't always see things perfectly. There's so many things, so many angles and dimensions of situations and people that I'm unaware of. Do I see things perfectly? No. Do I know things perfectly? No. Does God? Yes. So who is more reliable? My initial suspicions? My initial response to situations and what people say? My initial perspective and judgments of a person or a situation? No, God's. So part of surrender in prayer means, hey, I have a request, God. I am not assuming that I know best. I'm not just, because often what we do is we go, I have a request and I'm incapable of doing it. So do it. And we use prayer as like a means to get what we want. But the assumption within that is that what you want is actually good and acceptable in his sight. And that's not an assumption I can afford to make. And even if you evaluate through the lens of scripture and you go, well, I I look at the character and the promises and and the goodness of God and I've compared what I want to God's word and it matches up, okay? Even if you do that and you go, it is good for us to move into this home. It would make for an opportunity to be hospitable and have fellowship and, and raise my children in a good godly atmosphere. Even though you're looking at that and saying, this is good for me and my family, it matches up with God's word. The assumption within our requests often is this is the most good because I have decided that that is the best thing that could happen. And that's not an assumption we can afford to make. So when you pray, when I say surrender, I mean, part of that is, is recognizing that what I'm asking for is possibly not the best course of action. It is possibly not the best scenario that could play out. So if you have something better, that if, even if I looked at it, I go, that don't seem better. Even if I want what you want from me. Matthew 26, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be arrested, 
about to be put on trial, about to be laid on the cross and atoned for humanity's sins. Jesus goes to the garden with his disciples. He goes, hey, sit here while I go over there and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. And he goes, my soul is sorrowful. Remain here and watch with me. And here's what Jesus prays three times. Kind of like how Paul pleaded three times. Kind of like how Abraham walked three days to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he said, Lord, my father, if it be possible, is Jesus assuming that his human will here is the best possible scenario? No, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, so you, you see that human dimension of Jesus. Here's my desire. Here's my preference. And then he takes that. What does he do? He surrenders it on the altar. He lays it down before the Father. And he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. He'll pray this three times. Is this not the ultimate example of submission and surrender in prayer? Where Jesus, the King of glory, God in the flesh, has to submit his human will to the Father and say, even though I'm God in the flesh and I could, and I could summon a legion of angels, and I could just zip right on up to heaven and be done with these fools, even though I could rain down absolute fire on this wicked people, he's going, just because I can doesn't mean I should. So Father, if there's any other way, not as I will, but as you will. Ain't that interesting? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. So when you have a request, or even if you have an opportunity, let's say you have an opportunity, do you surrender to that rent to surrender? Do you surrender? Do you surrender that to God in prayer? That's the question. Instead of assuming, well, I can, so He made a way. Whoa. Did you establish in humble prayer that this is indeed the will of the Father? And don't just don't don't tell me you were asking God for a stamp of approval. There's two ways to pray. When I say surrender your requests to God, there's there's two likely perspectives. One, each of you has, okay? There's the perspective that says, I want to do this, and I just need God's approval, so I need to pray. The other perspective says, I want to do this, but I don't know if it's best. So I'm not just asking for God's divine stamp of approval for him to co-sign my decision. I want to know if this is the best decision, right? And then I would like his stamp of approval and ability to do it. Because some of us do treat prayer like I'm just trying to get permission to do something I've already decided to do. Really? Is that prayer? Or is prayer, hey, I have a desire and I can do something. Here's an opportunity. And I'm not going to assume that's best just because I can do it. So I'm going to lay it down at the feet of God in prayer. And I'm going to say, hey, you know better than I do. You see everything I don't. So I'm not just asking for your permission. I'm asking for your will. See the difference? One is we treat God like just a, a, a divine co-signer. Just do it. Just give me a yes. Give me a yes. Give me permission. Come on. Tell me if I can do it. Tell me if I can do it. But the heart of a, uh, a humble, surrendering child of God who wants the will of their father says, I don't just want you to tell me I can do it. I want your will, even if it's different than what I want. So I ain't asking for permission. I'm asking for your will. How do you submit to God in prayer? You imitate Jesus. Just because you can, just because you want to, just because you can reach for that fruit, and you can—you don't even need to grab a ladder. It's—it's it's low-hanging fruit. Just because you can grab for that, doesn't mean you should. Just because the serpent said it'll make you like God, doesn't mean it will. Just because you think when I get this, or if this happens, then all these doesn't mean those things will actually happen. Surrender your will and plan to God. Let me give you a few examples, and we're going to glean wisdom from these fantastic examples of, I think, the most extreme cases of surrender. When we talk about surrender, it's like, I'll surrender my money. I'll surrender my time. I'll surrender my butt to the pews of the church. I'll surrender my, you know, 
abilities and I'll serve the church and I'll go every Saturday and, and do some wall art. I'll surrender. I'll surrender my kids to the children's ministry all day if I have to. Praise God. But can you surrender your life? Hmm. Is that not what Jesus is essentially facing right here in the Garden of Gethsemane? What's he facing? A tension between his human preference and what he knows is the will of the Father. Oof. Will he lay that down? Philippians 2 will tell us he, he was obedient to the point of death. We can surrender to the point we're comfortable. You know what I mean? And then the question becomes, well, is it truly surrender if it didn't cost you something or if it wasn't difficult or if there was no degree of complication? If it wasn't difficult, was it really surrender? But the point of surrender is, look, sometimes when God calls us to give up something, lay something down, we're like, that's easy. The money you give me is yours anyway, so take it. I mean, I don't care. I know you'll provide. Or you asked me to surrender that car. I know I just bought it. I can easily give that away. I know you surrender. Okay, I'll surrender time. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll stay there all day to make sure the church is flourishing. I can surrender that. But what about when it comes, what about when it's your life that's actually on the line? And you are missing out on gain and profit and what you've defined as good. And God goes, yeah, don't go for that. Even though you could, even though you think it would profit you and, and add to you, don't get that. What then? Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're known by their Babylonian names. They, uh, looking at King Nebuchadnezzar, they just decided, we're not going to bow down to your stupid idol, you freak. <laughs> it's not what we're doing, sorry. Nebuchadnezzar goes, I am angry. Hulk smash. And Nebuchadnezzar, they go, look, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Look, if you're going to throw us in the fire, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able. Okay? And here's the tension within our surrender in prayer. Do you see this? God can, but he won't always do what he can do. We often assume God can, that means he will. Whoa, whoa. So just because he can automatically guarantees that he will do what you're believing him to do? That's not faith. Sometimes it's easy to have faith for big, magnificent things that benefit me. But do you have the faith to be okay with the no when God says, that's not what I want for you? Do you have the faith to lay down your will and surrender? Not just to believe for big things that benefit you. So he goes, look, they go, if this is what you want to do, God can save us. Okay, he can, he can deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So, oh, there's, a, there's an able to and there's a he will right here. He will deliver us. Well, I don't think that automatically is guarantees them being saved from the fire. Rather, even if King Nebuchadnezzar kills them, like death doesn't have the final word. It's not like the king... King Nebuchadnezzar decides where their soul goes. So in that sense, they'll be delivered out of the hand of the king through death or through life. Either way. But if not, know this, you big dummy. <laughs> we will not serve your gods. We will not. We will not. They have decided to be loyal and committed to the God of Israel. They've committed themselves. They've put a stake in the ground and said, we will go no further. Like, I'll do what you ask me to, as long as it doesn't violate the will of God, as long as it doesn't violate the word or the character of God. So know this, we will not serve you, your gods, or worship the golden image you've set up. Oof. There's no example of them praying. Not to say they didn't. I'm sure, like, as their faith... As they're walking up to be King Nebuchadnezzar, they're going, Lord, God, please come through. We're about to look the most powerful man on the earth in the face. Do something. I'm sure there's prayers being uttered under their breath, in their hearts. But the point of this is, they were able, willing to, surrender themselves over to death, knowing God could have spared them, even, if he, even though he might not. 
So they're not just going, God, you're going to do this because you can. They're going, God, you can. We're not sure if you will, but we're willing to lay ourselves down and face your no. Are you okay with God's no in prayers? Are you okay with a divine no? (laughs) Sorry, buddy. Or do you press in, almost force it to happen, try and manipulate the hand of God by recalling all the good deeds you've done, thinking about how holy you've been the last week, and God, are you serious? Are you okay with a no? When you get a no, do you try and force the yes? Daniel here, about to be thrown into the lion's den for praying when he shouldn't have, this has prayer all over it. Daniel's a man of prayer. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, the king, King Cyrus, or King Darius, I forget who it is. I think it's Darius. Yeah, Darius. Darius. He signed something that said, look, if you pray to any other gods, you can be thrown into the lion's den. Super cool that you just have a lion's den. And, uh, When Daniel knew the document was signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Now, if you thought Daniel 3 was an act of defiance to King Nebuchadnezzar, wait till you see Daniel's act of defiance. He opens, which of course, there's, you know, the promises of Torah written all over this. God promises when Solomon erects the temple, that if you pray toward the temple, so that's essentially what Daniel's doing, is praying toward Jerusalem with the windows open. So yes, it's in obedience to what the scriptures say and what he knows about the temple, even though it's destroyed at this point. But also, it's an act of defiance. To swing open your windows, you can pray in the direction of Jerusalem without the windows being open. So he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day. I wonder if there's something about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane three times. That might be linked to the daily call to pray three times. Not that it's a command or a requirement or you have to, but I wonder if that's ideal, at least. So he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, knowing exactly what the king signed. God, if I continue praying to you, I'm going to be thrown into the lion's den. What's that? You want me to swing open the windows and make sure everyone sees when I'm praying to you three times a day so I can be throwing the lion's den? Sure thing. He keeps praying. Gives thanks to God. Hmm. You ain't stopping me from thanking God. Are you out of your mind? Then the men by agreement came, found Daniel. Go down to verse 13. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles, pays no attention to you. Or the injunction you've signed. He makes his petition three times a day. He makes his what? His petition. You ever wondered what Daniel's praying? During the time he was allowed, or during the time he was praying before he was thrown the lion's dead? I wonder, just me speculating here. This isn't thus saith the Lord. But I wonder if he knew and was praying God, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm just asking that you deliver me. Because what does Daniel do in chapter 1 or chapter 2? I forget. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel and his three boys, they go, shoot. King Nebi woke up in a rage, wants to kill us all. Let's pray. Pray for what? Pray that God would give us the interpretation of the dream and spare our lives. I think this is a very similar moment five chapters later. Where Daniel's faced with another dilemma. Shoot, I'm going to be throwing the lion's den. I'm going to pray. And he petitions. This petition here is exactly what we saw in Philippians 4. The concept of making a request. What is Daniel requesting? I would assume it's deliverance. Salvation. In the midst of his faithfulness and continuing service to God in prayer, he could have stopped that and said, Look, Lord, there are other ways I can obey you. But this, let's at least pause on the whole prayer thing until the document like gets reversed. He could have done that. What does he do who remains faithful? So I'm wondering if prayer is a part of the way that God ordained to rescue Daniel from the mouth of the lion's den. In fact, if you go down from what I remember, uh, the stone is laid over the mouth of the, essentially sealing his fate, which you think of Jesus with with him being sealed in the tomb. The king went, spent the night fasting, okay, which means the king is definitely uh, worried for him. 
Then at the break of day, the king went in. He came and found Daniel. Whoa! And Daniel was rescued. Um, but yeah, I just wonder if Daniel's prayer, willing to lay down his life in surrender, but also prayer, you, you might say it like this, from the world's perspective, prayer is what got him into trouble. But from the perspective of God, it's very likely that prayer is the reason he was rescued and delivered, and God made a huge name for himself among that empire. And then King Darius ends up bowing down to Daniel's God and makes a decree in the land. All of that happens possibly because of prayer. So while you might think, well, prayer got him in trouble, prayer actually might have been the reason for his salvation and deliverance is that God answered his petition. But... What was Daniel willing to do in prayer? Surrender to the will of God. Same with Esther. Same with Esther. Esther essentially is putting her life on the line by going to petition the king, King Xerxes, to not let her people die. And she's talking to Mordecai, and she goes, Look, go get all the Jews in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days. There's that whole three days prayer and fasting elements we saw in Daniel's story. And also the idea of prayer in three times being an idea we see in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Interesting. Then I'll go to the king and look. She's decided to do the right thing. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking King Nebi in the eyes and going, we're not going to bow down to your gods. They decided to do the right thing. They, they dug their heels in the ground and said no. No to you, yes to God. Daniel does the same thing. No to you, yes to God. Esther does the same thing. No to you guys, yes to him. If I die, I die. What do all these characters have in common? They surrendered themselves over to the will of God. Their job was not to work out how it all happens, what would be the outcome. They were not in charge of the results. They were not in control of what their decision would be would cause for them. They were not in control of any of those things. What they were in control of was surrender. Surrender. And how did that look? It seems to be involved in each of these stories. Um, Possibly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. um, Likely a dimension of prayer, or at least submitting oneself to the will of God. And that's that's mainly the example I want to draw out for you. Is the way they say, you do what you want with me, but I'm going to do what you told me to do. That kind of surrender is what I'm telling you to bring into your prayer time. Not this half-hearted surrender where it's like, God, I'm willing to surrender to a point. Like, I'll do what you want as long as it's comfortable and convenient, but I ain't going further. That's not the kind of surrender I'm talking about. I'm saying, Let go of your preference. That's the whole point of petitioning and requesting is I'm letting go of my requests and saying, you do what you want, but I'm letting you handle it. I have a request. I have a desire. I have a plan and I'm letting go of control. I'm letting go of my ideal plan to say your will. So it's an exchange is what's taking place. Sometimes we think of prayer as I'm going into my prayer closet to make God do what I've decided is already best for me. When actually most of your prayer life is going to be an exchange. I bring heaviness, he he gives me a sense of relief. I bring my stress, anxiety, and fears, he gives me peace, right? I bring all my concerns about life and and I'm holding on tightly to control how it's going to work out because I want my kids to do this and I want them to grow up to be this and I want my wife to treat me like this and I want my house to look like this and I want my job to... And I, and I bring my, my desires and I let go. And I exchange those desires for God's will for my life. And if the two match up and if God's will matches up with mine, cool. But if it doesn't, some of us get real pissed, don't we? Yeah, your will doesn't match up with mine. I'm going to stay here until you change your mind. And I'll manipulate your hand. I'll say the right things. I'll go. I'll make the promises I need to. I'll stop drinking alcohol. I'll do what I need to. But I ain't leaving until I get a yes. And God goes, I already said no. And it's not faith 
to keep pressing in for a yes when he's already told you no. That's not faith. Some of the greatest demonstrations of faith in your life will not be to believe for the impossible, but rather to surrender what you know God can do and exchange that for what God says he's actually going to do and to be okay with the no. Y'all, we have faith for the yes. I'll surrender to the yes. That's easy. It's what I already wanted. Can you surrender to the no? And if you don't learn to give up what God asks of you, you'll give up what he has for you. It's the whole little picture of a little girl holding a tiny teddy bear and Jesus is going, give it over, little girl. I have a giant teddy bear behind my back. You have no idea. And we're going, but this looks so good. This is familiar. This is comfortable. I've, I've always wanted this. This is what I've dreamed of. I worked hard to get here. Like, I'm so close. I could reach out. I can taste it. And you're telling me no? And God's going, if you don't give up what I've asked of you, you're going to give up what I have for you. And I'll tell you, what he has for you is better, so much better than what he's asking you to give up and to surrender. So we need to learn how to trust in prayer that God knows better than us. Doesn't he? Some of you parents, some of you, we look at our kids sometimes and we're like, how have you survived at all over the course of you are, you are, it's like I'm talking to a brick wall with dementia. It's like you, you're not there. How have you survived? And there's these, there are these teaching moments where we look at our children and go, I I don't even know how to like talk to you. And we go, oh, is this sometimes how I am to God? (laughs) Where I'm just stubborn, stiff-necked and rebellious and refusing to, to change my stance on what I've always believed about certain things in scripture. And God's going, actually, you're wrong. And I'm not willing to surrender over what I believe is best for what God knows is best. I think, yeah, at times. Trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3 says. And you go, easy. No, no. Prayer is the practical expression of trust. Not the only, but a practical expression of trust. You go, how do I trust God? Bring him your concerns. I think we get afraid to bring God our concerns because we're afraid he might have something different for us. And we're clinging so tightly to our will that we come to him shaking. And we're not afraid that he can't do it. We're just afraid that he won't. God, if I give this up, you might have something different. And God's going, "Mm mm-hmm. But isn't that the point of trust? Is that when you don't see things that I do and you don't know things that I do, you trust I know better than you and I see clearer than you and I have better things for you? And we go, yeah. And we shakily hand over our request. Here, God, take it. And that's what prayer does. Prayer is to be that way you practically let go and give what it is that God is saying to give up. How you doing, Brother John? Good to see you on Facebook. Hope you're doing good. Because trust is not this ethereal philosophical idea where it's like, well, you don't know how much you trust. No, you know how much someone trusts God by the actions they take based on the promises he's made and what he said. So when I trust If I'm going to trust God knows better than me, then I will bring him my concerns. Then I will bring him my request. I will state my anxieties, my worries, my fears, my uncertainty. I'll bring it all to him in prayer. I will state those honestly, transparently, and I'll be as clear as I can here. And I will let go of what I think is best just in case he has something different because I trust that he knows better than I do. Surrender starts with trusting. Trusting someone is something that happens as you get to know them and spend time with them more. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. God ain't calling you to just blind faith step out because ain't nothing there. Just kidding. You fell through the cracks. God is asking you to know him so that as you walk with him, trust is developed. And then when he tells you to step out and you're like, that don't look like ground down there you know he'll provide the ground or you'll know that if you fall through the cracks, he'll let you fall to a point but never to the point of no return. Even if I die, he'll resurrect me. 
trust him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. This is not just wisdom for living. This is wisdom for praying. You understand that? So when God calls people, don't lean on your own understanding. It's not just like, well, when I make decisions, right? No, when you bring me your requests in prayer, when you voice your concerns, when you petition me, when you bring me your will and how you want your life to look, don't lean on your own understanding. What does that mean? Don't assume you know best for you. Don't assume that your imagination can concoct the best possible life for yourself. Don't assume that you see everything perfectly and understand best. Don't assume that you actually want what's best for you. You don't. I don't. And part of trusting God is going, you're right. I don't. And then that informs how I petition God in prayer. I can't assume I know best. It doesn't mean I can't know anything. But I don't have, I don't have all, I don't, have exhaustive knowledge. I know everything. I can see everything perfectly. I've known the scriptures for 60 years. You can know the scriptures for a million lifetimes. And the gold in that, never inexhaustible. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If I could give you any practical like tools for your prayer time, when you actually ask God for things, when you make requests, read Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 before you even ask for a single thing. Go, hmm, am I leaning on my own understanding here? Am I assuming to know best? Am I, de- am I deciding that my understanding of right and wrong here, even though it's different than God's, is best? Am I acknowledging God in all my ways? Am I trusting him to make straight my paths? In this moment, as I pray, do I assume to know better than God? Am I wise in my own eyes? Or am I fearing the Lord and turning away from evil? Fear of the Lord doesn't just mean, I respect you, I revere you, I'm in awe of you. It's that actually translates into the way I interact with God in prayer. Trust, surrender, give over your fears and concerns and what you don't have control over. Give that over to him and say, honestly, God, and I mean this, do what you want on earth as it is in heaven in my life. Your kingdom come, even if it's different than what I imagined it would look like for your kingdom to come through my life. Isn't that the story of the disciples? They're going, Jesus came to crush Rome. Hey, Jesus came to crush Rome. And then he doesn't, and then he dies, and then he resurrects, and they're like, "Mm, you... You were supposed that your kingdom coming is crushing our enemies. And Jesus goes, I did. Sin, death, and the devil. I crushed those fools like they were nothing. And sometimes the kingdom of God coming in our lives looks different. And we have to not just be okay with that when it happens. Honestly, look, look at me in the face. We have, to be, we have to expect that when we pray, there's a possibility That the way I imagine God's kingdom coming in my life looks like is not how it's going to look. That actually has to be an expectation. That it's possibility. God's going to do something different. Instead, we assume the opposite. We we default to God's going to do what I expect him to because I'm the ultimate authority and I see things clearly. Instead of the default posture of humility. And admission that you and I are not perfect, you know, in anything except what Christ has made us to be, which is in him. Job 12. It says, with God or wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. Can we say that about ourselves? Well, I have a degree of counsel. I have a degree of wisdom. I have a degree. But with God, it's perfect. It's inexhaustible. There's no end. This infinite, his wisdom, his counsel, his understanding. Meaning what? When I pray and I surrender, I'm not surrendering to someone that doesn't know how things will work out. I'm not surrendering to a guy who's like, listen, I just started this pyramid scheme and I don't even know if it's going to look good in a year. 
hopefully it looks good and we get our money back. We're not bringing our request to a God who might come through. This is a God who can. He's going to work all things together for good. He's sovereignly over everything. He's going to rework everything into new creation. And I know that he sees things and knows things I don't. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. Referring to the ends of the earth and everything under heavens. I'm just trying to remind you of why it is that we surrender to God. It's not blindly. It's not with it's not as if our trust is not informed by truth. Which isn't blind trust or blind faith or I don't know the guy, but I bought the thing, he opened his trench coat and he said he'd work, and so I gave him my money. That's not how God is. We're actually this relationship, this ability to surrender is built on trust. Because we know him. It's built on relationship. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. So let's just pause and say, I got a lot of plans. Type that in the chat. Say, I got a lot of plans. I know how this is supposed to look in a week. I know how my finances are supposed to look in a year. I know what my savings is supposed to look like. I know what I'm supposed to have uh, set aside for tax season. I know what my kids will be like in five years when they're still homeschooled and they're still out there. You know, I I have it all mapped out. I have all the plans. I know how the business is going to get started. I know who I'm going to recruit. I know how I'm going to get the loan. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But here's what's important for you and I to understand. And this is the most humbling truth. Mm. It is the purpose of God that will stand. Sometimes our plans are contrary to God's purpose, right? So I made a plan. His purpose is different. You know what wins the the battle every time? My plans get crushed under the purposes of God, right? And God's purposes aren't just for me, involving me, centrally around me. I got lots of plans. Like Daniel said, I got lots of plans. But you know who has an even better, more perfect purpose? That sometimes our plans don't fit into. Sometimes living life with God is like playing Tetris. There's a way things are supposed to fit together. And we see the piece coming down and we're like, it's supposed to fit there. And then we plug it in. It's like, oh no, there's that gap. Now I'm not going to get that line. And God goes, well, my purpose will stand. And he has a way of making it all come together. And oh, my plan didn't work out. And I put it where I thought it was supposed to go. And I put everything in place and I made the, I made the plans. I got with the right people. I got the counsel. I, I got the legal documentation and it didn't fit. And God goes, I know, but my purpose still stands. And he even uses our own mistakes, our own plans that are contrary to what he desires ideally. And he goes, I'll work that in. That This gets into the whole permissive will versus the actual ideal will of God. But at the end of the day, we know God's purpose will stand. As we make plans, as we make requests, we're surrendering not just to God's personal will for my life, but I'm surrendering to the ultimate grand plan of redemption and recreation and, and, rede- and all that stuff. I'm surrendering to that. And I'm saying, look, God, if, if my plan and my request doesn't fit into your game of Tetris and doesn't advance your overall plan to make all things new, I surrender. Because sometimes it's hard. <laughs> You're like, I know God can do this. And then we stop there and we assume he will just because he can. And we're not okay with that tension of God can, but he doesn't. Or God can, but he did not. Or God can, but he will not. That tension frustrates us. And it can almost breed doubt in you if you're not set up with the right expectations, which is, no, God can, but he doesn't always. Because you think he should, and he, he knows he shouldn't. So who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'm going to give you a few scriptures to end as it relates to prayer and surrendering. Okay. In John chapter 2 verse 5. And then one day I'm going to write a book on this. This this one verse is going to be the premise of an entire book. Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana. They run out of wine. They go to Jesus' mommy. And they go, we're out of wine. Mommy goes to Jesus and goes, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus goes, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, right here, these five words will change your life, your ministry, your vision, your calling, the way you relate to God, your future. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Easier said than done. Because what's Jesus going to tell these servants? Go get a few purification jars. Holds 30 gallons each. Big old jars. And I want you to fill it with water. Okay, that's easy. Now bring it here. Now draw some out. Take some of the water in a cup. Take it to the master of the entire feast. The one who essentially this whole wedding hangs on. Yeah, bring it to him to drink. Ah! <laughs> Whoa! You're asking me to bring water. Or how about the disciples passing out bread? We don't know how it multiplied when Jesus feeds the 4,000, the 5,000. Did it multiply in their hands? Did it multiply as they opened the basket? Did, they, did, it, did it multiply like as they would pass it out? They'd look and there'd be more. We don't know. But Jesus does hand bread to his disciples, and then they go and disperse it to the crowds. They come back and there's more, or somehow there's more in their hands or in the baskets that they're, they're, they're pulling from. Somehow there's more. And I want you to know this. As you do what God tells you to do, even though you're going, what's going to happen? Who's going to judge me? How are they going to respond? How will this affect my job? What will this mean for my family? What does this mean for my savings I've had for 10 years? If you just do whatever he tells you, you do not need to know the answers to those things because he will provide, he will care for you, he will lead you, he will protect you in ways that you and your own scheming and planning could never do for yourself. Just fill the jars. Just pass out the bread. Just take the water to the master of the feast. And he works everything else out. But surrender means I do what he says. I do what he says. And I pray, and I say, Lord, even if I don't want what you want in this scenario, more than what I prefer, I desire for you to get glory. Hmm? More than what my flesh defaults to. I don't want that as much as I want what you know is good. So I'm going to fill the jars and take the water to the master of the feast. I'm going to pass the bread out, and even if it means I look like a fool and I run out, it's going to happen. But I'm willing to step out. I'm going to look Nebuchadnezzar in the face and say, even if God doesn't, I know he can. So just, just know this. If we die in this fire, it's not because God could not. It's because he didn't. Or Daniel, throw me in the lion's den. Or Esther, if I die, I die. This is surrender. Jesus, the ultimate model. Father, your will be done. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he goes through with it anyway. How do you go through with something God told you to do when you know that God could have spared you from it and he chose not to? What kind of surrender, what kind of trust does that require? It requires a tremendous amount of knowledge, not just information, but intimate, familiar knowledge and relationship with God. I can take you to Genesis 6.22. Noah did all that God commanded him. What did Noah do? He surrendered like a century of his life. What did Abraham do in Hebrews 11.8? He left to go somewhere that he didn't even know where he was going and took God at his word. All these examples of, you would say, faith, right? But I want to emphasize surrender. Surrender. Okay, I don't know where I'm going. Hmm. I made plans for my life to die here with my family in this land and get rich. I'm surrendering that to move forward in what you've told me to. Imagine the prayer life of these men. Abraham leaving the land. Noah building the ark. The servants bringing the stuff. Esther looking Mordecai in the face and going, if I die, I die. Right? Daniel going, throw me in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Looking King Nebi in the face going, God can. Not sure if he will, but he can. Imagine the surrender in their hearts. That's the kind of surrender we need to bring into our prayer time.
not clinging tightly to our preference and holding God hostage to what you know is best, not demanding God do anything, not assuming just because he can, that means he will, but saying, Father, I am surrendering what I believe is best, my understanding of the world, what I define as good. I'm surrendering all that to you. This is God's desire for you in prayer. It's not just to get your prayers answered, but to learn how to surrender to what he actually has for you when you want something different. When you want something different. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the New Believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys, and as always, keep moving towards Jesus.